0: Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ellie Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Today's conversation is with the ever positive Ellie Cole. Ellie has become one of Australia's most accomplished Paralympians with 15 Olympic medals and a world record. At the age of three, Ellie's right leg was amputated after she suffered a life-threatening sarcoma cancer. When Ellie started swimming as a form of rehab post-surgery, doctors expected it to take at least a year for her to learn how to swim. It took her two weeks. Ellie shares stories about the power of gaining perspective, the essential role of gratitude, And the importance of normalising what we might see as a disability, but is really just her story. It's not only Ellie's courageous story, but her unrivaled sense of humour, her wonderful humility and the never say die attitude that makes her a true Australian inspiration. This is a conversation for the whole family to enjoy with the bubbly Ellie Cole. Ellie,
1: welcome to the studio. I'm excited to be in a studio. I feel very... Fancy right now. It's very fancy. Yeah. We've got the best studio for you. <laughs> now, I understand this is the first time you've been on a podcast. Yes, it is. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I've never done one. And I've been very curious to see what the room is going to be like and it meets my expectations. Yeah, we've got everything from musical instruments to Play Doh to
0: <laughs> drums. Who knows where this interview could go? Right? <laughs> what you can do with Play Doh? <laughs> I'm not sure what the sound effects are in a podcast. <laughs> we, can, we can keep the humour going from this. <laughs> Look, you've, you've done some incredible achievements and uh, what I understand is that you've had, you've got 15 Paralympic medals. Can you describe what it was like being on the starting block of your first Olympic finals? Can you remember what that moment was like?
1: Oh, I've, I've never actually thought about that before. But it's strange hearing you even just say 15 Paralympic medals because I remember being on my very first swim team and they said it would go by so quickly. And to think that I've already ticked off 15 and will be retiring soon, it's, it's been a very quick career by the feel of it. Um, standing on the blocks for my first Paralympic final, I don't actually remember what it was like. And I think everybody has that experience when they go to their first games. It can just be so overwhelming and everything's happening. You know, you've got the athletes' village, you've got the competition side of things, you've even got the social... Uh, side of the the experience where you get to meet athletes from all over the world and hear about what it's like to live, you know, in South Africa where there are lots of lions and what it's like to live in New Zealand where there are a lot of mountains. And um, there's just so much going on that I remember in Beijing I didn't take too much in, unfortunately. So I, I kind of have forgotten about it all. Yeah, I can imagine the
0: the overwhelm of the entire experience and just that recognition of A, being there, They're like connecting with other athletes and what they've had to do to even get there.
1: Yeah, and I think another thing to remember is that I was only 16 years old and I was still in school and I still had to do my homework and communicate with my teachers back at home and make sure I didn't fall behind in my studies. And um, so it's just I have really eye-opening experience for a 16-year-old to go overseas without their parents and to race in front of the entire world it's something that you know is the biggest sporting event that the world hosts every four years.
0: I can imagine there would have been a part of you almost living two worlds, like living in this school <laughs> world and then kind of this, this on, a, on, a, on a global platform.
1: Yeah, I think uh, anything that, that takes a lot of work to be successful at, you almost have to live two worlds. Um, a lot of athletes follow their passion from a very young age and they often start off with no money and really have to find that work-life balance and where they're going to fit everything in to be successful. And that's my favourite part of looking at other athletes is to see the road they've taken to get there and the bumps along the way. And it can be really difficult seeing the media almost tear apart an athlete if they haven't done a good job. And a good job seems to be an Olympic gold medal these days. But, um, you know, you need to remember where they've come from and they're not going to win all the time. And there's always going to be heartbreak. And um, I guess that just, that's just what makes up an athlete's life.
0: Yeah, and the stories, just to get there, I think it was even um, Kate Campbell off the back of the last Commonwealth
1: Games said that, said, silver's bloody good. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to remember that. It's really interesting in perspective because I remember at the Rio Games, I, I lost the gold by 0.02 in a 400-metre freestyle and it was literally the last stroke of, of the race. I lost the gold medal. But I was so happy to win silver because I'd never won a silver medal in the 400 meters before, and uh, in London I won a bronze. So I was thinking, you know, I did one better than the last games. I'm really happy with that. And then I got back to the athletes' village, and everyone was really awkward around me, and they kept saying sorry. And I was like, whoa, I thought I did a good job, but nobody else (laughs) letting you all down. (laughs) Yeah, sorry for letting
0: you guys down. (laughs) Oh, amazing! Yeah, I guess you can't imagine what. what someone might be going through, or yeah, what that mindset is mm. that sits behind them. Can you remember when um, the first time that it was announced that you would be on an Australian Olympic
1: team? No, I can't remember that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I knew I knew that I'd I'd want to be a Paralympian for a long, long time, and my first taste of an Australian swim team was only two years before the Beijing Games, and so I hadn't been around for very long, and uh, I don't know. I kind of just expected that once you made your first Australian swim team, the next step was to go to a Paralympics and it was just part of the process, you know. I wouldn't say I had a, my job was swimming at 16, but, you know, when you are employed by someone, you're expected to do a good job. And I kind of see sport as the same thing, you know, if it's something that you do every single day, then uh, it's not a big deal to go to the Paralympics. It's just the next yeah, next the box next that you have to tick yeah. <laughs>
0: by, by doing a good job over here or doing the training. Why swimming? Was
1: it always going to be swimming for you? Yes, I think it was. Um, for me, being a leg amputee, it's quite difficult to do other sports and I've <coughs> definitely given it a good crack. I've done, you know, the athletics and even a bit of wheelchair basketball, but swimming was a sport for me that I started through rehabilitation after having my leg amputated and... I don't know, it's just one of those sports where I can actually take my prosthetic leg off and I can get in the water with other kids and from the outside looking into the pool, I'm just, was kind of another kid and you couldn't tell that there was a difference between me and the person in the lane next to me and I really liked that because, I don't know, it's just one of the only times where people didn't just stare at me when I was growing up and it was one of the few sports that I could be better at everybody else despite them having... Two arms and two legs, and um, I, I think I just got really competitive through wanting to beat people who were physically more capable than me, and that's where I—that's kind of how I ended up on the Paralympic team. <laughs> was just. Pretty much me being a smart ass in the pool, and <laughs> I had a real in-your-face attitude when I was a kid. Like if I beat you, you should feel bad about it because I'm missing a limb, and um, <laughs> it's probably not. And I love
0: that they kind of almost competitive nature is catch me.
1: Yeah, probably not, not the nicest way to go about things, but I was very competitive. Yeah, and, and I love that sense of
0: um, yeah, we're all on the same level playing field but I'm going to rip in and (laughs) give this a real good crack as well.
1: Yeah, I remember um, growing up in my swimming squad as a kid and I was the only one with a disability there and my parents were questioning whether I should join a swimming squad that had other kids with disabilities and my coach at the time said, definitely don't do that. She's fast enough as is and you don't want to segregate her when she's already living a life that's so segregated. So um, I'm really glad that he said that. And it's interesting how one little comment like that Mm. has probably changed my entire life.
0: Yeah. And the impact that must have had on your parents and their decision at the time.
1: Yeah. And I always think of like the butterfly effect, whereas, you know, if that didn't happen, if he didn't say those words to my parents, what my life would be like, and it could be completely different. Mm. So you,
0: it was at the age of three that you were diagnosed with cancer yep. and the doctors made the decision to amputate your y- leg off yeah. the back of that. Have you got any sense of what that that was like for your parents? Because I imagine at the age of three, it was you know, there's probably not a whole lot of memory of that. But yeah. do you have any sense of what your parents went through at that time?
1: Only in the last few years, I've really asked my parents questions about what they've gone through uh, with my cancer diagnosis. But It's interesting, you know, when you see a child with cancer, people tend to forget about the family behind Mm. that child. And in a sense, I almost almost have a sense of guilt for what I put my family through. And I know my older sister still has nightmares that I keep getting my cancer back. And my mum, whenever you give her my first prosthetic, she tears up a bit. Mm. And I think, wow, you know, she's still affected by me having cancer, even though it's been 25 years now. But, uh, yeah, I've asked my parents about what it was like to go through that, and they said it was very difficult to explain to a three-year-old why they were having their leg amputated or, you know, why she was being pumped full of poison and chemotherapy. Um, so basically my parents told me when I went into the theatre that I had a naughty sore and that they needed to take the naughty sore away, and that's the only way they could explain it to me. And my twin sister heard them say that and then she thought she was getting her leg amputated as well. (laughs) But um, when I was in the theatre, I was really lucky. They put a prosthetic on me straight away to reduce the swelling of my uh, new stump. And um, apparently when I came out of the theatre, I lifted the sheets up and I looked under the sheets and I saw that there were still two legs there, even though one of them was made of metal. And um, it wasn't until the prosthesis saw that I had... Uh, the wrong size foot put on my prosthetic. And so he came in with like this screwdriver <laughs> and he took my foot off. And that's when I kind of realised that something's wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> that's not meant to normally happen, <laughs> which is pretty smart for a three year old, I'd say.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. I, and I, I always love how kids see the world anyway. <clears throat> but to have that moment to actually go, actually, I've still got two legs. Yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, that what that might open up and what that might, do? Like, I'm almost sitting here going, I wonder if there's almost like, oh, now I've got this
1: magic metal leg yeah. <laughs> like as,
0: a, as a child. Well, I, it.
1: Yeah, I tell a lot of kids these days that it's a transformer leg and they get really excited. But I've actually, I've seen um, the perception of, of parents telling their kids and teaching their kids about disability changing over the last few years. And I think it's because of things like the Paralympic Games and the Invictus Games. And um like five or six years ago, if a, a kid asked their parents, like, what's wrong with that girl's leg, they'd genuinely get a hit over the head. Yeah. But now when kids are curious and they ask questions to their parents, their mums or dads are always saying, you should go up and ask her questions and, you know, ask her about what it's like. And I really like that that's changing.
0: Yeah. What's that like from your... Because you would have seen both sides of that, I guess, um, growing up where, you know, it might have been four or five years ago where you might have heard those, those statements and seen kind of people turn away versus yeah. having people come up and ask you, which one of those do you prefer?
1: Uh, I prefer people asking me. I yeah. like curiosity. And it's a shame that sometimes I see kids being punished by their parents just for being curious. Like it's not something to be embarrassed about. But yeah, I, I've seen a big change in people's perceptions. And I think it's just a generational change. Um, you know, the young kids seem to understand and once they ask the questions about it and they understand what is going on, then uh, they're usually fine and they just ignore the fact that I've got a disability after that and I love that. So you've got a twin sister. Yeah. And do you have other siblings? hmm
0: <coughs> So for them, they, they were going through this experience similarly, like alongside you as, yeah. a, as, a, um, as a child. And um, yeah, it's interesting that you describe that your older, sis- older sister yeah. um, still has those kind of memories
1: yeah, you know, sort of
0: impacting for her as well.
1: Yeah, every um, it's interesting seeing the way she's dealt with, I guess, the last 20 years. She always mentions that she was the forgotten child throughout my cancer diagnosis and she kind of jokes about it around the dinner table, but I know deep down that she pretty much was my brother also had Crohn's disease and then I had cancer and anyway, I think having a twin sister, she always got brought along to whatever I was doing and my poor older sister just had to sit at home with my grandmother. But um, yeah, I think she's doing all right now. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she should just suck it up. It's been 20 years. <laughs> Message to all older siblings yeah. out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait it, yeah, make it go. I was having a look on your website, and um, you know, there's a blog post up there. Mm-hmm. And the start of that blog post, I actually want to read it out because it's really quite powerful. Is it? <laughs> <I don't laughs> know Let me where tell you, you how, how great this is. Um, it says, "The best things in life are unexpected. Sometimes these curveballs can blindside us. Sometimes they can teach us a beautiful lesson about our own inner strength." What does that mean for you? What does that, when we talk about some of those expect, unexpected things can blindside us? What have you learnt around your own inner strength?
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. Like when you're a young kid and you kind of just sit there and think about what your life's going to be like, you always say to yourself, I'm going to get married when I'm 18 and I'm going to have five, <laughs> five kids by the time I'm 21, even though that's physically impossible. <laughs> but you just plan this whole life out and you don't really plan for things to fail or for, I don't know, you maybe not to perform as well in an area that you'd like to, or sometimes your passions just change. And I think that's one of the greatest things that I've appreciated over the last decade or so is probably the more challenging times that have arisen and the more difficult times. Um, One, it keeps life interesting, that's for sure. Um, But two, it teaches you a lot about yourself and how you uh, handle difficult situations And, um, yeah, I think looking back over my swimming career, I've, I remember the tough times with a lot, uh, they're more vivid to me than any of the successes. Like I, I do remember winning, you know, Paralympic gold medals, but I remember what it feels like to go through a tough situation and, um... Yeah, I don't know. A lot of a lot of people shy away from putting themselves in an uncomfortable environment, but I don't know. I kind of like it.
0: <laughs> I mean, you've hit the nail on the head because often when we're in that discomfort or we're going through something tough, it's almost like, how can I get out of this as quick as possible? And then we move on to the next thing. And yet there can be real power in just being and and learning and and sitting through that. Is there any of those kind of tough experiences that come to mind? Is there any that the lessons that you've come out the other end that really still stick with
1: you? Um, Yeah, well, one of the more difficult situations that I've been through in my swimming career is probably being at the Australian Institute of Sport And uh, I had a really difficult relationship with my coach there and it wasn't healthy and it was quite a toxic environment. And, you know, I was kind of just getting slogged every time I went to the swimming pool. I was swimming anywhere from 15 to 20 kilometres a day. And about a year into doing that, I tore the labrums off my shoulders, which is the cartilage that kind of holds your... Joint into your shoulder socket. Kind of critical. <laughs> kind of critical, especially <laughs> to swimming. And both at the same time. And yeah, they both started tearing off at the same time. But I still had two years until the London Games, and so I couldn't really take time out to have a shoulder reconstruction. But I wasn't brave enough to stand up for myself as well, and so I kind of just kept going back to the pool and kept swimming fifteen to twenty kilometers a day. And it got to the point. I have this real vivid memory of me being in the shower after training, and I couldn't even lift my arms up to wash my own hair. I kind of had to tip my head down and wash my hair that way. And um, I don't know, I still didn't stand up for myself even when I was in that much physical pain, and it was quite emotionally traumatising as well to go through that. But I went through that for the next two years and kind of finished the London Games, fell into a complete heap, needed two shoulder reconstructions, was emotionally broken from the whole experience as well and never thought that I would swim again. But uh, about a year later, I jumped back in to the pool and broke a world record six months after that. So I think just going through all of that and, and being so broken and then basically rising up again and um, winning world championships was one of the prouder moments. I know I'm only 27, but one of the prouder moments of my swimming career. In
0: stories like that that can carry you through for that next tough time that will come to go, I've been here before. Yeah. (laughs) I know how to get out of this. What were some of the steps that got you from that that kind of, I guess, emotional overwhelm and even that sense of I'm never going to swim again to that world record? What were some of the things that helped you or or people that helped you?
1: Uh, you I don't know. I think perspective is really good for people in general and... That's one of the great things about the Paralympic Games. Like I've got a whole leg missing, but if I go to a Paralympic village, I'm the least disabled person there. <laughs> and so people might see me on the streets in Australia and come up to me and say, "I'm so sorry that you're like this," but then I go to a Paralympic village and they're like, "What are you doing here? <laughs> you're pretty much not disabled." <laughs> and you know, I <laughs> don't kind of, fit into either. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of just one foot in yeah. each world. Right. But I, uh, I don't know, like seeing that has put things into perspective for me that, you know, no matter what you're going through, there's someone out there that's going through so much worse than you. And that's not to say that you should just suck it up and kind of soldier on, but a lot of things do take time. And for me, that's all I needed. I needed a good year just to figure out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And for me, to get back into the pool, it was actually kind of just a light bulb moment. I was coaching... In swimming and I had this one kid, I had both my arms in slings from my reconstructions and I had this one kid say to me that he didn't want to swim that day and it was just a little flippant comment that he made and I remember standing on the side saying, you're lucky that you can even be in the water because I can't, I can't get in right now and I kind of just had this light bulb moment like, oh, I've put so much time and effort into my swimming career and I'm just about to throw it away and that I am lucky that I have the opportunity to swim, you know? A lot of people in other countries don't, and a lot of people with other disabilities don't. And I just really needed that hit across the head. I think <laughs> I got <laughs> back
0: in. Sometimes the advice you give to other people is the best one for yourself. <laughs> I know. And he was a
1: eight year old of all things.
0: <laughs> little did he know. Yeah. Little you've... did he know that he's changed my entire life. <laughs> <clears throat> back into the world record. That's incredible. And I guess for anyone listening, you know, you go through your own kind of ups and downs and doesn't have to be on a global platform like that, but Mm. um, I think stopping and and getting those moments of perspective and and I guess that that gratitude for what what I do have right here and right now is really, really powerful.
1: Yeah, I think gratitude's definitely very powerful. Um, A lot of people don't have enough gratitude, I think, but also keeping an open mind in what could be and uh, I guess, yeah, just keeping options open. (laughs) Does some of that, because you strike me as
0: someone who's pretty upbeat, pretty positive anyway, does some of that come from your upbringing, from your family?
1: Oh, I don't know. Probably not because my sister's not upbeat. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think the reason why I'm so upbeat and positive is probably because I have the gratitude there. I'm grateful for everything. Like I was eating breakfast this morning, it was delicious. And I was like, oh, I'm so grateful for this breakfast. <laughs> but um, yeah. is that a
0: practice that you like? You consciously step into, or is it just something that, uh, that you've kind of fallen into? Is noticing those moments?
1: I think, um, I think when it comes to having a lot of gratitude, it is practice. But you've got to be aware of what you're thinking, and if it's not very good, then just constantly trying to change those thoughts. We've done a lot of practice with that, actually. Um, as a swimmer in a performance environment. But luckily for me, I've transferred those skills over into my everyday life and I'm always practising, you know, I don't know, gratitude or positive affirmations. I'm I'm not sitting there and waking up in the morning and saying, you've got this, (laughs) Ellie. You're wonderful. Like I'm not doing that, but I don't know, just I I try not to complain too much because there's nothing really to complain about. No. No, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> and yeah,
0: we can find ourselves in this, this pit, right, and where, where things don't, don't come our way or yeah. it all feels like it's not happening. So I think, yeah, it is that reminder of going, yeah, actually really what's, what's it worth complaining about Yeah, um, can be, yeah, how do we kind of get out of that? How do you um, get out of that? Kind of bubble.
1: Yeah, I have this very (laughs) vivid memory. Two years ago, I went to Indianapolis for a swimming competition, and on the way over, I got really sick on the plane, and I had to race with a cough, which I thought was the world's worst thing. I was kind of moping around. I was probably bringing the mood down of my entire team around me because I had to. I had a cough. I acted like I had the black lung, and. I remember I was in the cool-down pool after my race. I didn't swim very well because I didn't put myself in a position to in the first place. But one girl came over to me and she introduced herself and she asked me how I raced and I said, I have a cough, I didn't race very well. And I was kind of focusing on this cough thing. And anyway, I asked her about her story and how she became a Paralympian. And she told me that she was a combat medic in the army and she got shot out of the sky by the enemy in a helicopter And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And she's like, yeah, and then I was in a coma for six months and then I had to learn to walk again. And I was like, oh, when was this? And she said, you know, only a few years ago. And then I went to the Invictus Games a year later and both of my lungs collapsed and I died three times. And then I went into another coma and I was like, oh, okay. I've got a cough. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) This
0: cough is not looking so (laughs) good. it's not looking bad.
1: And then she's like, and then I'm getting my leg amputated next week. And I was like, "Oh, oh, my goodness. Wow. And that for me was a real, almost like slap in the face to like, I can't believe that you're focusing on this cough so much and obsessing over this cough and it's really not that bad. And ever since then, I've never complained about being sick. And I remember actually I I broke my foot last year and I raced with a broken foot and I was like, don't complain about it, don't use it as an excuse. And I went to that level of being extreme. (laughs) But yeah, that really put things into perspective for me that day. And that's kind of changed my whole life. Mm. yeah, I can
0: imagine because <laughs> and and I can actually also imagine the focus on the cough because when you're you're competing at that level, um you're talking millimeters in like milliseconds mm. um, the difference. And so you want to get every advantage that you possibly can. And so anything that kind of feels like it's pulling you back, a bad night's sleep could feel like, that's it, it's gone. Um, so I can totally understand almost the focus on the cough, but I yeah. love that story of actually
1: <laughs> I know <laughs> I felt like an it's idiot. Just a cough. <laughs> I felt like an idiot complaining to that girl. <clears throat> but um yeah, it's interesting that you say that races can come down to milliseconds because what I found at an elite level of swimming, an elite level of sport, is it requires such mental strength and Uh, We physically prime our bodies every day through training, but we don't really work on the psychological side of sport. And you've seen it time and time again at the Olympics, at the Paralympics, at any world-class event, people who should be winning consistently are all of a sudden choking. And um, I've found that on the blocks, if you're not mentally prepared and not 100% there mentally, no matter how physically fit you are, you will underperform. And so that's been really interesting, learning that as an athlete over the last five or six years, especially.
0: Do you have a pre-race mental program? Like, is there something that you do pre-race?
1: Well, my pre-race approach is very interesting. I tend to get really sleepy. And when I'm in the call room, I kind of have a little nap. (laughs) And a lot of the athletes in there are getting pumped. And I'm just kind of sitting in the corner yawning. And I think it's taken my competitors by surprise a little bit because I walk out you know, before a Paralympic final and I'm yawning my head off. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: is this part of your game plan? Is
1: it? <laughs> I don't know. A lot of people are really surprised, but I don't know. I just take a really relaxed approach to racing and my coaches have never been able to understand it. And I remember when I was a kid, my coach saying to me, Ellie, you need to get up more. You need to get pumped. And I was thinking, but why? Like, that's not the way I do things. And uh, yeah, so I get really sleepy.
0: Right, <laughs> obviously, he's working. So stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> you were part of the Commonwealth Games here on the the Gold Coast. Yeah. It was such a great um, games to be a part of, and as a spectator, it was it was awesome to to be there and part of the atmosphere. It was also um, the theme of the Commonwealth Games was called one team, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was very much a combining of both the. Um, para-athletes and the able-bodied athletes mm-hmm. all together and yep. um, all of the medals tallied to the same tally. What was that experience like for you? Uh,
1: well, I've been to a Commonwealth Games before in Delhi. I missed the last ones in uh, Glasgow because of shoulder reconstructions. But I've experienced being on a, an Olympic team before and travelling with the AbleBod able squad before. But I don't know, like a lot of people that I went to the Commonwealth Games with, I grew up with in swimming. And I know a lot of the able-bod Olympians very, very well. But whenever we have our competitions throughout the year, we're always going to separate competitions. And it's like that. Every four years, we meet up for Commonwealth Games and it's so different with the way that they do things. But my favourite part about the Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast was showcasing Paris sport to Australians because they don't get to see it very often (laughs) And it was interesting because I underperformed severely at the Commonwealth Games. But the crowd just loved the fact that I finished the race. Which made me feel really special and I really liked that because I didn't feel very good about myself inside but the crowd was just like, yay, well done on just being there. (laughs) And I really, really appreciated that. And what I loved about the Commonwealth Games was the young kids getting excited about para sport, and I've, I've had so many kids message me on Instagram saying that they want to be a Paralympian when they're older and I don't have the heart to tell them that they can't be unless they've got a disability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you go for it. They'll figure it out soon enough. <laughs> I'm
0: sitting here nodding my head because I have an 8 and a 10-year-old and um, uh, we had a family member that was involved in the... Um, was a handler for the para tri- one of the para-triathletes, um, Lauren Parker, who got a bronze medal. And so we were very involved in in um, kind of her story and also yeah. the story of some of the other um, para-triathletes. And so each night, my daughter in particular wanted to know their story and would Google them and find out. And um, yeah, she actually came back and said, Mum, I want to be in a wheelchair. I know. <laughs> Same thing. I'm like... But how amazing to kind of have that—is that yeah aspiration and yeah. and to be able to see the endurance and the work and that that it's just really normal through there. Right?
1: I know. <laughs> and actually, what I loved about the kids was getting fan mail from them, and some of the young, maybe four to five year olds drawing stick figures with one leg or <laughs> things like that. And I'm like, oh, they understand that I'm missing a leg, and they can draw it yes. and see it in their head about what it looks like, and I can imagine that, you know, kids growing up these days are going to have a very different idea about what having a disability is going to be like compared to 100 years ago. And like when you even just think about the word disability, you know, not being able to do something, like I reckon if young kids these days had to rename that word, it would be something completely different. Mm. Um, So it's kind of cool to be part of that.
0: Yeah, 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 big, big shift in kind of um, mindset and and seeing it. What was behind the not not, I guess achieving or getting to the level that you had hoped for the Comm Games?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I've been perform- underperforming for about the last twelve months or so, and it's re- been really tough. Actually, I've, I've relocated to the Sunshine Coast, and I was doing. I'm doing a very different training program um, to what I was doing in Sydney. And I know it hasn't been working for me, but I'm so like attached to the idea of what a swimmer should look like or how a swimmer should train that it's almost like I'm not trusting my gut. So I'm kind of learning and learning from my mistakes at AIS especially, um, that I probably do need to make a change in some areas. But I don't know, taking that leap into the unknown is a bit scary for me right now. And I think I just really need to sit down and write out a plan of what I think I should be doing or what I think my training program should be looking like. But yeah, there's this mindset in with swimmers that we have to swim 20 hours a week. And in Sydney, I was only doing six hours a week and I was doing world records doing that. Mm. But I don't know. I kind of get judged by my teammates not training as much as them, but I train in different areas. Like I'm more of a dry land trainer and they're more of an in the water trainer. And I don't know, I kind of let that get to me a little bit. So now I've just got to kind of stick to my ground and do what I know. But it's scary doing that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Particularly if you, yeah, it is the unknown around how's this going to work? How's my body going to respond? Yeah. um, What would that kind of fit in? But it sounds like it's a bit of a trusting of... Myself. Yourself. <laughs> yeah, back to that three-year-old self that just kind of yeah. went, I'll show you how to do it. I've got that grit in me.
1: Yeah, so it will be done over the next few months, I think, but uh, it's just about really taking that leap, and that's really scary, I think. Who's supporting you through that? No one. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, my mum's ringing me up every day and saying, like, how you doing today, Elle? And she's been really good, but um, I've got a heaps of support through Timming Australia uh, with various people, And I've had a couple of conversations with people here and there about about it and, you know, they're on the same page as me, which is great. So I definitely do have people out there supporting me. It's not like I'm that one rogue athlete that's just doing whatever she wants. (laughs) Yeah. We
0: touched on before because particularly when you swim at the elite level that you do, um, often there can be a lot of sacrifices and it is absolutely kind of full focus. Mm. Um, Do you have kind of things that you do on the side or stuff that kind of is outside of swimming that also kind of fills your cup?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people say that athletes sacrifice their lives for their sport, which in a sense is true, but we wouldn't be exercising for 30, 40 hours a week if we didn't absolutely love it. And I spend the majority of my day thinking, like, should you eat that donut? No, don't eat that donut, you're an athlete. And I find almost every single decision in my day-to-day living affects how I am as an athlete. And I think, you know, that's what makes an Olympian or that's what makes a Paralympian. But it's really important to have something else. And, you know, we've seen a lot of athletes, not necessarily in this era, but in the Sydney 2000 era who retired from sport and they didn't have anything else to enjoy. So um, we have to either work or study as an athlete now, which is really great, I think, because when you do retire, you have a plan B to fall back on. So I've just graduated university about three weeks ago. Congratulations. nine years to do my degree. (laughs) Well done. What what degree have you done? I did a degree in health, but I had to do it in under 10 years, otherwise my subjects from my first year wouldn't count anymore. So I had to get it done. Um, So I've got the university degree to fall back on, and I do enjoy studying language. Like I'm learning Japanese at the moment. But uh, I really enjoy getting outdoors and I think pushing my limits physically elsewhere apart from the swimming pool. And so hiking for me is a really big thing. But it's so funny because every time I go off a mountain, I go with the same two girls and we're always like, I wonder how many people are going to look at you today, Ellie, and say, you're amazing. Like, good on you. (laughs) It's so funny because every single person that we pass, they kind of look at me up and down and say, I've got one leg. And they're like, wow, you're incredible, and I, was, I, I, I actually don't like getting comments like that. It makes me feel different. Yes, yeah. And I was like, they've got the right heart there, but what would you prefer instead? Just good morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only hundred meters like I'm to on the top. A How are you going? I feel like I should have like a light glowing behind me or something. I can imagine your friends going bingo after yeah. the tenth one. <laughs> <laughs> Do a Gatorade that's shot every yeah. time someone says that's so, like, right. Get the electrolytes up really high. <laughs> Yeah.
0: It is important to have those, those side pieces and you did touch on before, you know, a lot of athletes, you um, know, in a whole range of different sports actually, mm. you know, Ken, your whole identity is combined into that career who you've been known as, you know, in your case as a, as a swimmer, um, that that completely shifts and changes um, and I, I still think it's just as relevant now, It's I, I think, on the platform of, of conversations. For you, and you mentioned retirement before, I'm not sure whether that's on your cards <laughs> or, or wh- where your thinking is at, but at some point um, that will happen. Have you got a bit of a glimmer of what that next um, kind of identity shift might be for you?
1: Um, yeah, of course I have. Like retirement for me is going to be in 2020, so after the next Games in Japan. And, uh, well, firstly, I need to enrol in my master's degree, but I do want to do high school teaching. I've always enjoyed swim coaching and I really love being around kids and I find them hilarious, actually. But uh, I really just enjoy, I don't know, having conversations with kids, teaching them a few things here and there. And I think I would really enjoy being a teacher and just seeing... I just love how quickly a child's mind can change and how quickly they can learn things. And I get really excited. I remember when I was coaching, one of my kids held a really good streamline in swimming, which is the thing you do at the start of a race. And I got so excited, I just stood on the side of the pool and cried. Uh And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of, I think I would really enjoy teaching because of that aspect. I get really proud of people really easily. And I think uh, I would love to be involved with, I don't know, 30 or 60 kids and be proud 30 or 60 times over. <laughs> and they are such a sponge and we'll put it into place straight away. Yeah. If
0: they start to see results. Yeah. So. What's your day-to-day kind of routine like?
1: <clears throat> <laughs> swim, eat, sleep. <laughs> That's actually all we do. Repeat. <laughs> that is all we do. So we swim, eat and sleep on um, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays because we have two swimming sessions a day. And then uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have the afternoon off. So I'm a big foodie, so I'll either cook or I'll go out for food or I'll just hunt food all around Brisbane or the Sunshine Coast. But... That's, I guess, still part of the eating category, isn't it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, before we jumped onto Mike, you were salivating over a burger that you've just
1: had. I had a burger. At, I ordered it at 10.45 in the morning and I wasn't... I actually had to ask if they were open. I was like, are you guys open yet? And like, yes, do you need something? And I was like, I need to eat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you were glowing after this burger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, where are you at your most happiest?
1: Oh... I don't know. Where am I at my most happiest? I'm kind of just happy throughout the whole day. I don't have to be in a specific area to be happy. Actually, I'm most happiest. My parents have this farm in West Melbourne. It's two hours west of Melbourne. And my dad, is building a house out of rammed earth. And he's building it himself. And so I love going out there. I've got these muddy boots that they've left by the front door for when I come home. I put my muddy boots on and I just kind of just go out into the paddocks with my dad and build stuff and he teaches me all about engineering because he's an engineer, about how this works and how that works and I just love it. I'm really happy out there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Something about being out in nature with family, obviously seeing what he's building with his hands. It's incredible.
1: My dad's always been like a very much like a project man. He has his little projects here and there, which a lot of men do. But um, I kind of get that from him as well. I love having little projects or like little hobby projects. But this one, building a house, is massive, obviously, and it's taking him quite a few years. But the way he's designed it is incredible. Like, you know, the water from the shower runs in these pipes underground and then they feed the orchard and <laughs> it's very technical. And I just, I don't know, I love working on it with him so that when it's finished I can say, like, I put that there or I built this part of the wall and it's a lot of fun. A sense of achievement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> What's the aspiration for Tokyo? Tokyo. I haven't thought about that actually. So we always obviously think ahead to the next games, um, but there's so many little stepping stones along the way we need to mark off and I think that's what keeps you from being so overwhelmed as well is you've got your final goal, but you need to make sure that currently what you're doing in the present situation is, is right for you as well. But for Tokyo, oh, God, I haven't actually thought about it. Getting there is obviously... Getting (laughs) there would be a massive achievement. So for me to get to Tokyo, it means that I have been at the highest level of sport for 18 years, which is a long time. So for me just to get there will be really great. Um, I've won the 100 backstroke in London and I won the 100 backstroke in Rio. So to do it in Tokyo will be really good as well. But there are heaps of good swimmers out there at the moment that are just kicking my butt in backstrokes. So, yeah, just a lot of work to do. That's a huge amount of time at that level. 18 years, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, And as you say, just the achievements along the way mm. to kind of get there and I'm sure those, those, that next piece of the puzzle will, will click in the gear
1: for you. Yeah, good there's chance. actually um, there's a girl in our swimming team at the moment and she was born in the year that I started on the swim team. <laughs> I was like, goodness gracious, it's that's time. That's perspective. <laughs> it's time for you to retire, Ellie. Hang the goggles up.
0: <laughs> I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When mm-hmm. you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life?
1: Oh, for me to live a standout life, that's very important to me. I think standing out is uh, really important. I remember as a kid having a disability, all that I wanted to do was blend in, and all I wanted to do was be the same as everyone else. But to, to become a Paralympian is obviously a very standout thing to do, um, and to juggle your day-to-day life and try to be a professional athlete is a very standout thing to do, but I draw my inspiration from so many women who are doing similar things, and I think if you yourself live a standout life, you have no idea how many people you can inspire just by living the life that you want, the, living a life that you want to live. Um and I, I don't think uh, people appreciate that enough about each other, you know. Someone has a dream or a goal and just going out there and giving it a crack is a really admirable thing, I reckon.
0: Yeah, you're a role model wherever you are, yeah. whatever you're doing. Yeah. I can say to people, people are watching, so make them proud along the way. Yeah. It's been such a delight to chat with you, Ellie. <laughs> appreciate it. I'm kind of salivating after that burger now, I've got to say. go <laughs> <laughs> and get
1: it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the wagyu, bacon and cheddar